0: Thank you for tuning into Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today, is it not? My goodness. Oh, that was straight fire. So good. Um, and I hope that if you're worshiping with us online, a piece of it made it through to your device and your heart, because it was really, really good to sing praises with you. Um, well, I, I want to say um, happy holidays to you, because I feel like today is sort of like a national holiday in the United States. It, it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? And in so many ways, our world comes to a screeching halt and we all watch football together. So. Just by show of hands, how many of you are rooting for the Rams, okay? How many of you are rooting for the Bengals? Right on. How many of you don't care? How many of you are rooting for the commercials? Right, like This is an interesting development that's happened in our midst, and I don't know if you're aware, but it began in 1984 when Apple computers launched this commercial that played during the Super Bowl, and everybody tuned in and leaned in, and other companies started to go, you know what, that's not all that bad of an idea. Let's run the best commercial we can at the time when as many people are watching TV as there are throughout the rest of the year. And so the prominence and allure of Super Bowl commercials has continued to develop in our time. And it's sort of a game within a game, isn't it? I mean, after the Super Bowl, you'll hear people talking about, well, what was the best commercial? What was the funniest commercial? I think there's bets about what commercial will be played right after the coin toss. For what it's worth, I think the best commercial of this year will be the progressive auto insurance ad about unbecoming your parents. They're just brilliant, aren't they? I mean, I think they are hilarious. But there are companies that pay good money to run their ad during the Super Bowl. Did you know that in 2021, it cost $5 million for a 30-second spot in the commercials? And thanks to inflation, it sh- shouldn't surprise you, that's gone up this year. This year, $6.5 million for 30 seconds for your ad to play during the Super Bowl. Now, here's my question. Why in the world are companies spending so much time developing a message, developing a 30-second spot to show you, and why are they spending so much money to get it in front of you? Because they know... That they have to spend money to make money. Yeah, right. And they also know that if they can get their idea inside of your heart, it can shape a desire that will eventually determine how you spend money. One person summarized the goal of advertising is to convince the consumer their life will be better with their product. And in some cases, that's absolutely true. And in other cases, it's a complete and empty lie, is it not? And we all know that words and ideas matter. That's why they spend so much time. That's why they spend so much money. Ideas and words have the ability to burrow their way into our soul and to give shape to the way that we spend our lives. It is no accident that, as Mark Batterson wrote in his great book, Whisper, you see roughly 5,000 ads every single day. Pause. Pause. And take that in for just a moment. There's big money in advertising because the messages we believe shape the lives we live. And you know who else knew that? The Apostle Paul. And he actually writes about the message that the church is delivering in his letter to the Corinthians. If you have your Bible, will you open with me? 1 Corinthians chapter two is where we're gonna be camping out today. We're gonna start in verse one in just a moment, but I just wanna catch you up of where we've been over the last few weeks together. See, two weeks ago, we talked about the foolishness of the cross, that in the world's eyes, this is absolute absurdity, and yet, in the eyes of the Jesus followers, this is the penultimate event that has taken place in the history of our world. That everything points back to that event, to the cross. Last week, Dennis did a wonderful job unpacking the foolishness of the church. How many of you are wise? How many of you are noble? And the answer is, not many. And our boast is in God, is in the cross, not in ourselves. Can I get an Amen. And today we're going to see that the foolishness of the church and the foolishness of the cross is only echoed by the foolishness of the message that we are called to deliver. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul wrote this. And when I came to you, brothers, did, uh, and, and I... Let me go here. <laughs> And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. I mean, I think in so many ways, Paul is personally echoing what he wrote In verse 31 of chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's going, this wasn't about me. I came to you weak and trembling, gutted in so many ways, not self-reliant, but completely spirit-reliant. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This passage is about the message. Paul says it in two different ways. The first way that he said it was in verse 1. I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech. This word proclaiming literally means to laud or to declare But then he goes on in verse four and he says it a different way. He says, My speech and my, say it with me, church, (laughs) message. In the Greek, it's the word caruso. And it literally means to declare, to make known, or to openly declare a public and new reality. Uh, there's one theologian named Gerhard Friedrich who said the critical factor in this word, Caruso, is that it denotes eventness, meaning that it points back to something that had happened. When we talk about declaring a message or preaching, as it's often translated, Caruso, we're not talking about philosophy, we're talking about reality. We're not talking just about ideas, we're talking about an event that happened in the course of history. And every time someone preaches, verse four, every time someone preaches, they declare something that has happened and they hold out the reality that in light of that, an entirely new way of being is possible. So here's the question. Who preaches? Who preaches? I mean, this idea is pretty important. Who does it? Here, Do I do it on a... Sunday morning, well, interestingly enough, none of the church fathers, when they wrote about this word and this idea, Caruso, or preaching, or delivering a message, talked about what we do when we gather together publicly. None of them talked about what I'm doing now. Now, I'm not comfortable giving this way, word away entirely, okay? So here's what I wanna do, I wanna share it with you. Because it's not just me who preaches, It's we who preach. You preach when you go to your work on a Monday morning. You preach when you see your neighbor walking your dog and have a conversation that eventually leads to Jesus. You preach when you gather with the other moms at the park and have a conversation. You declare, when you declare what Jesus has done, you are preaching. In fact, would you turn to the person next to you and say, You look like a preacher? (laughs) You look like a preacher. Yeah, the big implication that Paul's making is that preaching is not something that just I do, but something that we do, and that's really, really important because there is a potency in this proclamation. Look at the way he said it. My message and my speech were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, here's the point Paul's making. Whenever we declare a message, it creates a place for our faith to rest. Imagine just lying down in your bed, laying your head down on a pillow. That's the picture I have when I think of rest. And he's saying the message that you hear creates a habitat for your faith to rest. And when your faith rests on a faulty message, it lacks power. And when it rests on the true message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you get to connect your life to the power of God because the message that we believe determines the power that we experience. This is a mighty message. And when your faith and confidence rests in the wisdom of men, it lacks power, but when you hear the message of the cross and trust firmly in Jesus, you experience and walk in the power of God. When we believe in this message, it's like our faith hardwires us to the throne of heaven, and we have heaven's resources flowing down and pouring into our lives to change and transform us from the inside out. In fact... Look at the way that Paul said this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we, what? Preach. preach. Same word, Crusoe. What we preach to, what? Save. To save those who believe. That's some wonder-working power, is it Not? That when we believe this message of the gospel, it connects us to God in such a way that we are saved and that we are redeemed. And some of you are here today, and you haven't experienced the genuine, true power of God in your life because you have not believed on the genuine, true gospel. Let me say it like this. If the message about God you believe is one that revolves around trying harder and doing more, your life will lack power. If the message that you believe is that when you perform well enough, you will be loved, your life will be devoid of power. If the message that you believe is that God exists to make you happy and wealthy and all the time just walking in bliss, your life will be devoid of power because here, newsflash, Life isn't just up and to the right all the time. Can I get an amen? Amen. And when the bottom falls out of that faulty message, you believed, your life will be left in shambles. And see, I believe that today Jesus would call some to believe on him for the very first time, the true message of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And then for others, I think he wants to remind you that you are not just a recipient of this message. You are a carrier of it. Because we all live and give a message. Our lives and our words, they speak as parents, as grandparents, as neighbors, as friends, as employers and co-workers. We live and give a message. The question is, does it have the power to save? Does the message you live have the power of God behind it? Now, if you're you're like me, I'm going, okay, well... How in the world can we live and give this message? Great question. Go back to verse 1 because there's a few things that Paul points out that allow us to align our lives with this message that, where it can flow through us with power. Listen to what he said. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers. And I, I love this picture of Paul quite literally going to Corinth. If you go back to Acts chapter 17, you'll see that right before Paul landed in Corinth, he was in Athens. It's about 53 miles or a two-day walk from Athens to Corinth. And Paul literally went to them. He didn't wait for people of Corinth to come to him. He said, I'm pursuing you. I'm going after you. And I think in so many ways, Paul paints a picture for the way that God spreads the good news of his mighty message. It's carried through relational pursuit. The gospel always runs along relational lines. When God wants to deliver a message, he sends a messenger. That's why he sent Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh. It's why he sent Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites and call them to repentance. It's why Jesus, God incarnate, comes and delivers a message that the captives have been set free. It's why the apostle Paul will write to the church at Rome and Summarize why he's there. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How how can people know the message of the gospel if they haven't heard it? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone, say it with me, Preaching. preaching, Caruso, same exact word. See, Paul's claim." Is that without preaching, there's no possibility of belief. And his methodology for getting this word out is not just me. It's us. It's us. Yeah, he sent preachers to city halls, to classrooms, to engineering firms. As janitors, as business owners, as bussers. He's sent preachers into his world to declare his love. It reminds me of a story that I read just a few weeks ago about a woman named Sister Antonia Brenner. She grew up in Beverly Hills. She raised seven kids, had two failed marriages, and God got a hold of her heart. She gave her life to Jesus, and she started having this prompting to share the good news of the gospel with inmates. And he actually called her, not just to minister to inmates but to go and to live among them she went and she lived in one of the most dangerous jails in Tijuana in a 10 by 10 cell in the morning she came out to call just like the rest of the prisoners there but she was there as a messenger of mercy to share the good news of Jesus with everyone she met. And I love the way that Father Joe of San Diego once talked about her. He said, you walk in her presence and you know you're in a different world. Rhyme, reason, you can't rationalize why she did it. She had that one-on-one relationship with God. So do you. You. If you're a follower of Jesus, so do you. So let me say it again. When God wants to deliver a message, he sends a what? Messenger. What if you really believe that? that he sent you exactly where you are to be a messenger of his good news and his mercy and his grace. What if you really believed that and started maybe just inviting people to come with you to church? That, That could be one little step in the right direction or even better to come over to your house for dinner or to come and join you at Alpha to hear about Jesus and process what it means to live by faith. What if you started to take just one little step believing God, you have called me where I am to be a mouthpiece for your mighty message. That's what Paul did. He went to them. Second, look at what he did. He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, just a note, Paul is not advocating for lazy, monosyllabic preaching. That's not what he's saying. But before Simon Sinek ever started with why, and before Donald Miller ever helped you create a story brand where you could have a unified message, and before Steve Jobs ever said deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do, Paul was calling the church to be a church that had a singular unified focus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the mighty message. You start to get it cloudy, and it loses some of its potency. It loses some of its power. But if you clarify it, oh, that simple, clear focus, Christ and him crucified, that's the power. That's the might. That's what has the ability to change lives. And I would suggest to you that Paul is not down on eloquence. He, he made quite the arguments and... Many of his letters, well-reasoned and well-thought-out. But what he's saying is that eloquence has to always be subservient to the message itself. It's exactly what John Calvin wrote when he said eloquence is not at all at variance with the simplicity of the gospel when it does not disdain to give way to it and in subjection to it, but always yields service to it as a handmaid to her mistress. That any sort of eloquence or illustration has to serve the message itself. And I just have to wonder if the Apostle Paul, remember where he was before he went to Athens? Or sorry, where he was before he went to Corinth? Athens, right? You're so dialed in. I love it. Super Bowl Sunday, and you're like right there, right? Yeah, so before Paul went to Corinth, he was in Athens, and if you remember anything about his ministry in Athens, it's where he preached on Mars Hill, in the Areopagus, and it's a study in contextualization. It is a marvelous sermon, but it's the only sermon we have recorded of Paul where, at least in what we have recorded, he doesn't mention the name Jesus, and he doesn't talk about the cross. He only talks about the resurrection. And I just wonder, as Paul is walking these 53 miles from Athens to Corinth, which, by the way, Athens was one of the only places he didn't get beat up, and it was one of the only places we know of that he didn't plant a church before he left. And I wonder if he was just going back through his mental notes, praying, seeking the Spirit, and I wonder if he just came to this conclusion. I've just got to keep the main thing the main thing. I just, yeah, quoting the pagan poets and philosophers, that's all fine and good. But I just need to point people to Jesus, to him crucified. Let's keep it about that, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Jesus of Nazareth lived and died on a Roman cross, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave. If you ask the early church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And this was their message through and through. And I just had to zoom out of the context of this letter and try to zoom into our context today in 2022. And I just, if you were to go on the street today and ask people, hey, describe to me what a follower of Jesus is like. What are some of the things that they believe? What are the things that they're convinced of? I'm not sure if you would hear people talking about Jesus. I'm not sure if you'd hear people talking about the cross. I think you'd hear some people maybe mention that and you'd hear some people talk about, well, Christians, here's the way that they vote. And and Christians, here's the social issues that are important to them. And Christians, here's some of the other things that they're against. And I'm just longing for a day when because of the message, the clarified, simple message that the church gives is of Christ and him crucified, when you ask somebody what a follower of Jesus is, they would respond not by talking about a political persuasion and not by talking about a social issue, but that they would talk about us being people of the event that Christ gave himself on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave with new life in his hands. That that would be the unifying message that we live and the message that we Give. Friends, let's be a church that is all about Jesus. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. One person, amen, that. Praise be to God. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, all right. Yes. Here's where Paul goes next He says, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I mean, three ways that Paul goes to great extent to make sure that you don't think he's a hero, that he's not wearing a cape, that he limps into Corinth and he delivers this message as a broken vessel and a servant, not as a superhero wearing a cape. And it's the next thing that we learn about presenting this mighty message. The mighty message is delivered with honest humility. I don't think Paul's being self-depreciating at all. I think he's just being brutally honest. Weakness, fear, and trembling. And let's just call a quick timeout and say that's good news, is it not? How many of you can get there? Weakness, fear, trembling. Check, 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 right? I love this because if there's anything in your story that makes you shrink back, Back, Paul's speaking to you. Any regrets you wish you could erase, Paul is speaking to you. Anything that's been done to you that you wish you could have undone, Paul is speaking to you. And he's saying that those redeemed failures, that redeemed abuse, those redeemed things that you wish you could hit rewind on and undo forever, those are the very areas that the gospel shines brightest through and that the grace of God is displayed most powerfully in. The scars are a part of your story, but they become illustrations of God's grace that his mercy shines through to people who's met the message you are called to deliver listen to the way he said it second corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 paul wrote this he said but he god said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And isn't it interesting? We try to hide our weaknesses. We try to cover our flaws. We try to outrun our mistakes. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Those are the very places that God's grace shines all the more brightly through. He re- went, went on to say, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses. With insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. I- I'm content getting beat up if my weakness creates a better platform for the gospel. For when I am weak, then I am what? Say it with me. Strong. Strong. Yeah, yeah, here's his point. That our weaknesses are weaponized when the grace of God gets a hold of them. Not to be used against us, but to be used by him as a platform for the power and potency of the gospel. This is a subversive beauty of the message of Jesus, friends. Jesus uses the very things we wish we could forget To display his power, his grace, and they become ammunition for his glory on display. And this is how it's always worked. I mean, you can open your scriptures and you can go and you can read about Moses in Exodus chapter 3, who's a man with a stutter and God chooses him to go and to speak to the Pharaoh about letting his people go. This is divine comedy. Moses, I'm choosing you, and he's like, me? Come on, God. He chooses someone who commits adultery to pen poems in our Old Testament and to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. Someone who God would say, he's a man after my own heart. He says, weakness weaponized he chooses a woman of ill repute someone who had questionable morals to anoint jesus with perfume before his burial and he says whenever you tell the gospel story you're going to talk about her this is weakness weaponized on her hands and knees declaring he is good and he is god and he if he can do that with those people's weaknesses just think of what he could do with yours think of what he could do with mine Some people have asked me, "Um, do you get get nervous before you preach still? Yeah, sure. I, I was once sitting next to Dennis. We were speaking at a conference, and I leaned over to him, and I said, hey, do you still get nervous before you preach? And he said, absolutely. He said, you never get rid of the butterflies, but you can teach them to fly in formation. mic drop, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so here's the thing I would say to you, when you're on that walk with your dog, when you're at the park with the other moms, when you're with your grandkids, you never get rid of the butterflies, but you can teach them to fly in formation. And see, in each of these cases, whether it's Moses or whether it's David or this woman who's caught in adultery, what we are taught is that the nature of the messenger must match the nature of the message itself. You cannot have a message about grace delivered by somebody who doesn't think they need it. You cannot have a message of death to self carried by someone who's self-obsessed. You cannot have a message of mercy carried by someone who's perpetually angry. It does not work this way. Paul is claiming that the messenger must live in alignment with the message itself. And the good news for you is that in order to live in alignment with it, you just need to know you need the grace he died to give you. And listen again to why this is so important and in my speech and my message or my preaching, we're not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. And Paul, what Paul's saying here is a little bit different than what he'll say in some of the other portions of this book. See, because in some of the other portions of this book, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit where God's power is displayed through us. But here he's talking about the way that God's power is displayed in us. That when we hear the message of this grace, of his cross and his resurrection, that God's spirit gets a hold of that message in our hearts and he awakens dead things to new life. He sets the captives free. He brings about healing and goodness and mercy in our lives. Where he then points at the church and he goes, these people, you are my message of grace and mercy on display for the world to see. And see, when we preach the message of Jesus, we encounter the power of the Spirit. And friends, I'm calling us to be a church that longs for more. Let's not pacify our complacency. Let's ask Jesus to do a great work in our midst. Let's ask him to move in power in ways that we have yet to see. Let's ask him to heal. Let's ask him to redeem Let's ask him to bring about revival. I don't know about you, but I have zero desire to play church. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to come here and sing great songs and hear an okay talk and leave the same. I long for the Spirit of God to touch us. I long for the Spirit of God to ignite something different in us. I long for the spirit of God to move where we point at it and go, that wasn't wisdom, that wasn't strategy, that wasn't our ingenuity, that was God's power on display. And I don't know where you're at, that's my ardent desire before the throne of God. And I love the way that the people who Jesus walked with back to Emmaus, they had this like after action review of their time with him. And what they said was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on that road? While he opened to us the scriptures? I love this picture of when we hear the gospel and it starts to do something in us, uh, our hearts start to burn. We become children of the the burning heart. And I'm just here to tell you, it's not because I get the words right. I, I think sometimes when we are called to to preach or to proclaim or to share the gospel with people, we think that it's sort of like Wordle in the morning, right? Where we've got to get every single letter in the right spot in order for it to click and work. Here's the good news. It is not about you getting the words right. It is about God showing up in power as you declare the simple message of the gospel. And one of the things I'm so grateful for is that we see this on display all around us. I, one of my favorite times to see it is during uh, baptisms, when we get to hear the story of, of God making dead things alive, making new. I just want to remind you of the way God's at work. We've seen over 50 people baptized this year, but I want you to hear some of their stories. I always thought of baptizing as getting rid of your old self in the water, having it like melt away almost. And then when you're coming up, it's like that shedded skin is gone. I want to commit myself totally to God and Jesus. And I want to symbolize my love. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't mean I'm more saved or less saved. Um, I'm hoping that he sees it as an act of love and sacrifice to him. How did it feel? It felt amazing. It felt like freedom. It felt like love and grace by God. It felt amazing. It was extravagantly beautiful. (laughs) Everyone knows that I have been baptized and I want the Lord to be my Savior. You have to do it. I mean, it's just the greatest thing in the world. You have to do it. It's just another step of freedom. And that's the way I feel. I'm, I'm free. I'm a child of God. I was bought with a price. So I'm free. So go for it. God demonstrated his power. That's just a little picture. We we see it all over. That's what we're all about, you guys. We're all about lives being changed by the power of God. And when we are changed by grace, renewed by grace, then we become carriers of that grace. And it doesn't mean we have it all together at that point. Can I get an amen? Yeah, Paul describes us like this. He says, but we have this treasure, the good news of the gospel. In jars of clay. That would make a great band name. (laughs) (laughs) To, To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He goes, listen, we're just earthen vessels. We're just jars of clay. But inside of us, because of what Jesus has done, there's a treasure that has power. And when we declare that, and when we point to him, our lives start to have power too. The year was 1947, when there was a young shepherd who was wandering around in the Dead Sea region of Israel looking for a lost sheep. See... um, roughly 2,000 years before he lived there, his ancestors did. They were part of what was called the Qumran community. They've moved out of society and into the wilderness in order to pursue God in a unique way. But in many ways, their lives were an enigma, clandestine, sort of hidden in the desert, until this Bedouin shepherd walked into this dark cave, thinking that his lost sheep had wandered there. He heard something, and he took a rock, and he threw it into this pitch dark cave, and he heard a Pop And what he heard was actually a clay pot breaking. And he went over to this clay pot, and they shined some light on it, and he started to look inside, and what he started to pull out, he recognized as fragments of what looked to be scripture. And see, hidden in this desert for roughly 2,000 years, were parchments of every single book in the Old Testament, except Esther, hidden in these little jars of clay. It was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most prominent discoveries of the 20th century. But I thought, what a great picture of our lives too. Jars of clay, earthen vessels, feeble and frail. You throw a rock at us and we'll crack. But inside, inside, we carry a treasure, the message of God that Jesus Christ loved us enough to give his life for us, died on a Roman cross, was buried and rose again, and there is new life in his hands. And when you connect your life to that message, it lights up with power. So, how do we live this out this week? Let me give you three ways. One, would you analyze the message on which your faith rests? If it's any other message other than Christ and Him crucified, it lacks the power that God would want you to have flowing from His throne into your life. Repent, believe the good news. Second, would you ask who Jesus wants you to share with this message, this good news? Remember, you look like a preacher you are. And then finally, as you do that, would you expect that the spirit of God will move in power? Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And when you speak these words of Jesus, they are filled with spirit and life. Okay, so let me end by giving you my 32nd Super Bowl commercial spot. I sort of imagine myself walking in a forest with some dramatic music playing. Thank you, Melody. And I think it sounds a little something like this. I know you're searching for something to make your life meaningful. We all are. It's part of what it means to be human. And so we scratch and we claw, we try to climb the corporate ladder. We try to make sure that the right relationships are in place and that we have a unique brand. But today, I want you to hear the good news. The God of the universe has come to your rescue. Sin is killing you, but Jesus died for you. Believe and be saved, believe and be healed, believe and live eternally because only when you believe that Jesus died, can you live with power and scene and sermon. (laughs) May the mighty power of God be displayed in your life. Let's pray, let's pray. So Jesus, in the midst of today where we hear all sorts of messages and we're bombarded with information, may our hearts be captured with the good news of the gospel. The message that by grace and mercy we are saved through faith, that you love us, that you died for us, that you've come for us. May no other message capture a piece of our heart. May our faith fully rest on that, not on our performance, not on our achievements, Not on our dreams of how good our life would go, but on the reality that you've died for us, risen for us, and are inviting us to live with you by the power of your spirit. May it have power in our life and in our church and in our community, we pray in Jesus' name.